friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. At the bottom of the hour, along with my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire of the Catholic Association, we'll be talking to Nicole Caruso about her book on dressing in a way that expresses your feminine genius. A very timely book now that summer is starting and people are having trouble (laughs) with that concept. Lots of women having trouble with that concept as the temperatures heat up. But before that, a much more serious topic, the big news this past week about over 90 Catholics uh, massacred on Pentecost Sunday in Nigeria. We've talked uh, on this show about that area and uh, attacks uh, and persecution of Christians, so we'd like to refocus on that today. We're going to turn to Stephen Rasha of the Religious Freedom Institute. He's a senior fellow for international religious freedom and conflict regions, and he has extensive experience in Nigeria, where he's a visiting fellow of the KUKA Center, and he's also on the board of the Catholic University of Erbil. Welcome to the show, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here, Gracie. Stephen, we're very happy to have you on the show because um, you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience um, in these troubled spots of the world where Christians are routinely being aggressed and oppressed and persecuted. And the last few days, we've seen an example that is just beyond horrific of this kind of terrible consequences of being a Christian in so many parts of the world. Of course, I am uh, referring to the terrible news out of Nigeria. So Stephen, tell us about your uh, direct involvement in Nigeria. I know you have boots on the ground there. And uh, please tell us about the KUKA Center, which I found so interesting when you mentioned it to me earlier. Yeah, well, thanks for, for asking about that. So I'm with the KUKA Center in, uh, in Nigeria. And uh, through that work, been there on uh, multiple extended visits over the last two years, traveling throughout the north, the northwest, the northeast, uh, and the central regions of Nigeria, working closely uh, with the priests and uh, some of the various bishops on what the situation is there, trying to really figure out what is the proper way to message what is going on there and what is the proper way, more importantly, to take care of all of the people that are, are being affected by it. And especially the uh, displaced, because uh, you have a situation dating back to uh, uh, 2014 and the attacks of Boko Haram up in Borno State in the Northeast. And then that has evolved into uh, this violence uh, across the north and central parts of uh, Nigeria over the last uh, several years, primarily from uh, uh, armed uh, Fulani herdsmen, Muslim herdsmen. And uh, this uh, current uh, situation we see now, uh, this awful, awful attack uh, way down in the south, the eyewitnesses uh, are all pretty clear about this. These gunmen are not unknown. These were armed Fulani Muslims. I haven't wanted to look at any images or even to delve very deeply into the the details because I find it so horrific and also so close to me, obviously 
I was at Mass on Pentecost Sunday. Didn't have any expectation of anyone bursting through the door <clears throat> with guns. And I, I can't imagine what that must have been like for them, for these families. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what they endured? Well, uh, the death toll is now uh, approaching 90 uh, at the last count uh, that I received uh, from some of uh, our priest contacts there. It's, uh, uh, it seems uh, quite clear that this was in response to a crackdown by the governor in uh, Ondo State to restrict the uh, the grazing movements of the cattle. Uh, the Fulanis are herdsmen, and uh, they've been moving their cattle aggressively throughout the country in some ways in uh, provocation, although historically they have been there for a long time, but not down there in the south. And the, the governor uh, restricted recently their grazing uh, movements, and this attack seems to be a reprisal for that. Uh, um, there's uh, much uh, thought within the, the Christian leadership in the Christian world that uh, when you see this type of just off-the-scale violence, ostensibly uh, in response for grazing uh, right dispute, that it's really just being used uh, as a pretext, uh, that there's a, there's a deeper uh, religious element to it. Uh, they're using the herder farmer conflict as a pretext to do this. Uh, I think that uh, uh, most people by now can look at this and say, um, murdering over 80 innocent people at church is something quite different from having a dispute over herder farmer conflicts. So you think the, the these people uh, are using this, uh, this um, ostensible conflict over land to to hide what just a deep a terrible enmity of of the Catholic, of the Christian faith or wanting to take over the country and make it a Muslim country perhaps all of the above what's happened is that the the Fulani herdsmen are an old ancient uh, ethnic group within uh, Western Africa moving their herds across basically all of the Western African countries for centuries when they became Muslim some centuries ago uh, since that time they have engaged in uh, periods of jihad. Uh, that's something that's not entirely new. But what seems new is that in this last decade or so, there's been an element of real radicalization that has come about through through interaction with Boko Haram, with uh, the Islamic State of West Africa. And now these groups uh, are mingling with each other and moving in ways such that at once they are religious radicals and at the same time armed bandits taking advantage of anything they can and at the same time uh, professing to have their own griefs or grievances uh, against the government for what they perceive to be their own marginalization. So you have a lot of things happening at the same time. Uh, at the base of it, the Christians seem to be the target of choice and it's really difficult to turn away from the idea that the uh, the fact that uh, these are Christians and the attackers are Muslims, uh, the attackers are Muslims, has uh, has a great deal to do with this. 
Is the government of Nigeria able to fight back? Are there, are their hands tied in some way, or do they not have the resources to to turn back this tide? This is a, one of the biggest problems right now. The current administration, which has about a year left before elections, ha- has really just collapsed in terms of its uh, ability or uh, or even desire. It seems to impose uh, internal security on the country. Uh, a lot of this violence has been building uh, over the last uh, several years, and uh, it's really, unfortunately, not a surprise that. We saw what happened this past weekend, uh, a culture of impunity against this type of growing violence has absolutely been allowed uh, to develop. And the, the current government in power has just been increasingly oblivious, throwing out uh, statements of dismay after the fact uh, with absolutely no real follow-up on any of it. And there's uh, very little confidence uh, anywhere within Nigeria that the current government is is going to be able to do anything about this. What about pressure from outside? Um, I was very shocked to see very little talk about this, the Pentecost massacre in our main media outlets. For instance, it's been remarked upon, I'm not the first to notice it, that it didn't make the front page of the New York Times. I mean, this this beyond horrible attack on, on families in, that happened in Nigeria. Yeah, there, well, there are a number of things, I think, going on in that at the same time. I think at the, at the core of this, you know, we've just become such a distracted people with such a limited attention span. And mm-hmm. that's in, in, in everything around the world. Uh, you look at Ukraine, you, where is the news on what's happening uh, in Ukraine? It, mm-hmm. it was 20, 24 hours a day for a week and a half. And now it's on page 53. And and it happened, it happened that quickly. So this situation in Nigeria, it's so far away. It doesn't touch us. It's not really a thing that we need to worry about because it's just so far away from us. I think the other thing, though, that is clearly going on is, and this uh, it comes from much of the West, much of the Western uh, governments, is this uh, desire to frame everything in the context of either climate change or some other uh, Western social justice priority and a, uh, a real uh, lack of willingness to confront the issue uh, of violent Islam, which exists in this world. And, uh, you know, when you keep denying that that can be an issue in and of itself, then it gets really difficult to, to address uh, any narrative on these stories. And you look at it, even where these stories have been uh, have been followed, most of them are saying, unknown gunmen. Well, they're they're unknown only to the people in the West mm-hmm. or the government people who don't want to know who they are. Uh, evidence abounds on the ground now uh, that the uh, the attackers uh, in uh, in Ondo State uh, were Fulani Muslims. It's it's quite clear. You can look at the video. It's quite clear uh, who these who these people were. And yet, in any of these uh, serious publications, world leader uh, news organizations, nobody's done the digging to find that out, which they could do 
in 15 minutes. So so you think part of this is that the the it doesn't fit into one of our preferred narratives here in the west. The ones that we are the ones that we are like um, pounding drums about, right? Climate change and gender ideology, etc. 100% that is a major contributing factor. I I would guess too that there is a lack of uh, knowledge uh, and there's a lot of confusion about uh, the different groups uh, that are sure. that are aggressing. So you mentioned two, for instance, you mentioned book Haram and also the Fulani. Who are these people and what do they have in common and what what don't they have in common? So, as I said before, the the Fulani are are an ancient ethnic uh, uh, nomadic herding group uh, indigenous there to Western Africa who've been there for a long time. Uh, They were uh, um, they were uh, they had their own nativist religions until they were converted to Islam. Um, but they've been a predominantly Muslim group uh, for many, many centuries now. Boko Haram, on the other, uh, other hand, is a relatively recent group uh, and uh, following in the same lines of uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, and in fact, uh, had a formal affiliation with ISIS for for a period of time. They've since splintered off, but uh, Boko Haram is more of this uh, more recent radical uh, Islamist terrorist uh, group. I mean, Boko Haram means roughly translated means against uh, Western education. Hmm. Means no no Western education is is prohibited. Um, it doesn't translate directly, but this is roughly the meaning of it. So it, it's 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 against everything West. Now, what's happened is that in these last years, this last uh, five years especially or so, these groups have started mingling with each other um, and uh, coordinating in in loose fashions and uh, a lot of the ability of, of the Fulanis to become armed comes from this greater connection to the more uh, radical terrorist world um, that was uh, that developed in the Middle East and North Africa um, over these last decades. Wow. So they're being potentiated by the kind of terror, uh, terrorist groups that, that we see operating in other countries. Um, yeah, it's really a, a, a toxic brew of, uh, of violence. Absolutely. And what are the, the, tell us about the demographics of Nigeria. How many people in Nigeria um, are Christians? How many Muslim? How many nativist religions? Yeah, so so Nigeria is the most populous, uh, populous. Uh, excuse me, uh, it doesn't strike that. We'll start off again. <laughs> Nigeria is the the most populated country in Niger- in Africa. There are uh, as many as two hundred and thirty, some say even two hundred and forty million people there. It's tough to get a, a count um, because of all the violence going on in the country and all of the displacement. It's certainly well above two hundred million people. Of those people, uh, it's roughly split down the middle, uh, one half Christian, one half um, Muslim. Mm. The Christians are pri- uh, primarily in the south, Muslims primarily in the north. The the, the native animist uh, uh, religions are really still quite, uh, at this point quite small. Oh, that sounds like a recipe for, for much trouble. Half and half and then the two poles um, like we've seen in other countries. 
Well, the thing that's really alarming is that this violence has been mostly uh, in the north. The, as I said, the Muslims uh, are the, the larger population, the majority population in the north. Um, but there is a sizable Christian minority. And most of these attacks that have targeted Christians over the last uh, years um, have been there in the north. And that's why this one in, in uh, Ondo State is so uh, disturbing, uh, because, you know, this is not an isolated rural area where this happened. It, it demonstrates that these herdsmen are able to move in numbers way down into the south and, and uh, perpetrate these horrific attacks uh, in the middle of the daytime and uh, they've been threatening about this they've been saying we are in the forests we are moving around uh, we are going to come and get you and 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 so now we see them begin to to make good on those threats it's it's a really dark and frightening time and uh, the local security at us in the, in the states and, and the military really have their work cut out for them now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Stephen Rash. He's a senior fellow at the Religious Freedom Institute for International Religious Freedom in Conflict Regions. Stephen, I know that you are also expert in the Middle East, and you wrote a fabulous book called The Disappearing People, The Tragic Fate of Christians in the Middle East. And that's something that we we talk about a lot on this program. I think we we put a lot of attention on our brothers and sisters there. What similarities do you see between these two regions? Are there growing similarities um, in in the way that the the terrorism is being exacerbated? Well, uh, as I I spoke about earlier, uh, there was a direct link between ISIS and Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were in communication and to some extent even coordination with each other for a time. So in terms of this existence of radical Islamic terror, um, that's absolutely uh, a commonality between the two places and the uh, Christians uh, being uh, the the target of choice is is a commonality as well. In the Middle East uh, and Iraq, you also had the Yazidi population and you had the mix of also a Shia population, these uh, radical um, Islamic terrorist groups that we're talking about in in Nigeria and in uh, Iraq were primarily Sunni Muslims. Um, And uh, so they would attack Shia Muslims as well and Shabak Muslims. And you don't really have that in uh, in Nigeria uh, as you did in in Iraq. Much of the civil war uh, or the civil violence in Iraq that took place after the U.S. occupation was between uh, the Sunni and the Shia and uh, with the Christians and the Yazidis uh, at that point more the collateral damage than than anything else. Um, it's in terms of other similarities the uh, uh, the issue of treatment of this by the West when ISIS came to power when ISIS began going after uh, the Christians, when they began going after the Yazidis. There was a real hesitancy in the West to call this for what it was, a violent Islamic Islamist uh, group. Instead, they were... um, uh, you know, uh, violent fundamentalists or violent extremists. And nobody would would speak the words, uh, being willing to relate this uh, directly to uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. And when 
when you said have it of a group calling itself the Islamic State, and the West was really hesitant to to address that, and because of that, it made it really difficult to uh, even try to deal with the situation uh, as it is. And the frustrating thing about that is, it, it's not that there are not moderate voices uh, within Islam who uh, agree with this, who, who, who say, "Look, this is a problem of violence." within this element of Islam and we have to we have to acknowledge it and accept it and deal with it and to pretend it's not there just guarantees it will continue there are some really courageous Muslim leaders um, in this world who are, are trying to make a statement on that but they are not being listened to and one of the reasons that they're not really being listened to as they should is because we won't even address the problem as being something that exists. And that's absolutely common between the Middle East and Africa. Well, we come to that same uh, question that keeps resurging, right? Is is the problem with Islam or is the problem within different interpretations of Islam? Is that what's stopping people from going down that road and saying the problem, that we could even decide that from the outside? Well, it could be both things, mm-hmm. but uh, you have to begin with the fact that uh, that the perpetrators of this violence are acting in the name of Islam. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to begin with that. If you can't begin with that and the justifications for persecution and violence that are stemming from that, then you can never get at the problem uh, itself. And, and, and you know, this is really the the issue. You know, I'm not an Islamic scholar. Uh, I, I I am reasonably expert on seeing what the results have been of of uh, of, of uh, self-professed uh, Islamic violence uh, in the Middle East and Africa, and. Uh, you know, we keep dodging around who's really perpetrating this mm-hmm. and, and for what reason uh, people are really perpetrating this. Again, uh, our fallback seems to be on everything right now that it's related to climate change. And, and that that excuse gets gets less and less easy to accept when you look at this type of violence as it happened last Sunday. But as you said, how you make the leap from saying, yes, there's climate change in which people are threatened to somehow saying, "Okay, this is a plausible reason for why uh, Fulani Muslims would travel Mm -hmm. down from northern Nigeria all the way into the south and attack a church and murder over 80 innocent people and then try to blow up the building. You know, I I don't think that that's an argument that that any moral or sane person can make. And and yet um, we've set in motion now in the West a paradigm in which climate change is basically driving everything. And I think we, we need to do a big reset on that. Not well, to say that cli- climate change is not a problem. It is clearly a major, major important problem, but it doesn't give a pass for all of these other behaviors. More than one thing can be true at the same mm-hmm. time. And, and I think we need to get a little bit more sophisticated about that over the last 10 years. So let me ask you, if, if you were running the world, if you were running the West, what what would you recommend from the outside, from, from Western countries? What, what, should, what could we do to help this? 
Well, it's unclear right now. As I said, Nigeria is now in the run-up to uh, uh, new presidential elections. It's, it seems pretty clear that the current president um, has lost control of the country. And so that really, really limits um, what anybody can do in terms of putting pressure on the government to the extent that the UN or the West could become involved uh, in this further. Um, that's a really tenuous path as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the hesitancy of, of people to get uh, involved on the ground there. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, really uh, dark uh, immediate future that they're looking at. You know, if, if a new administration comes in that is able and willing to actually deal with this, it's not that Nigeria doesn't have a military. They have a, have a large military that's been very effective in peacekeeping forces uh, around the world. Uh, elsewhere in Africa. So they do have a, a military that, that knows what to do. It's a question of will and direction on what to do. And, and in the uh, current situation where you have a, a completely ineffective uh, government leadership, uh, those things are, are quite limited. One thing that could be done um, is that there, you know, the level of corruption that exists in Nigeria um, is really uh, monstrous mm-hmm. and harms the people. And that money is being stolen. It's being stolen by, primarily by politicians and corrupt businessmen. Uh, money that was intended uh, to be for the benefit of the people is being taken offshore. It goes to the UK, it goes to the EU, it goes to the US. And when you look... And what the world was able to do in terms of shutting down uh, Russian oligarchs when it decided to do something about that. If if the world looked at Nigeria and said, hey, look, this country is about to blow up. If we don't bring it under control, one of the first things we need to do is is throttle down on all this corruption and, and make these people start paying attention to their own country. A concerted effort by the world could make a difference um, on, on that. But it needs to begin with an admission as to what the problem is. And, and we can't even get that far. Well, Stephen, it sounds like one thing we can do, uh, us and our listeners, is at least pray. Pray for the country, for the people, for those have, who suffered terribly on Pe- Pentecost Sunday and their families. And thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. And thank you for sharing all your, your deep knowledge uh, and experience of these areas. And thank you. This is to learn more about Stephen Rush. Please visit religiousfreedominstitute.org. And and thank you, Gracie. And and one thing I, I would like to say, you're absolutely right in terms of prayer and and help uh, for the people uh, there. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Uh, it keeps them uh, in everybody's mind. Uh, but the other thing is to remember that even in the midst of this, the people still have to live. And so there are organizations that are there trying to put into place uh, hospitals, healthcare clinics, uh, schools. And and, and that sort of thing. And we can find ways to support them. Two of the best organizations doing work in Nigeria right now are uh, the, uh, the Knights of Columbus and Aid to the Church and Beat. They're both doing great work there. Well, 
welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie on EWTN Radio. Um, joining me right now is my colleague at the TCA, Ashley McGuire, and a great new guest that we haven't had on the show before. Her name is Nicole Caruso. She's the author of Worthy of Wearing, How Personal Style Expresses Our Feminine Genius. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful topic here in Miami where I live and where Nicole just told us she recently moved on to South Florida, which is nice, and she's enjoying it. It's very hot and people are taking out their summer clothes and they're very, very skimpy. <laughs> and I drive by the beach every day because uh, on my way in and out of, of the little island where I live, I, I drive along the beach causeway. People's bathing suits are getting smaller and smaller. And uh, although I should be glad, I guess I should be thankful we're still wearing them as is not the case in some countries. But anyway, summer is a time when people become more scantily clad. And in general, it, it, uh, it helps us sort of confront these, these trends in, in the way we dress and, and the way that it doesn't express our feminine genius in many ways. So I'm glad that, that you wrote your book. And, and tell us, what does your book address and what did you hope to do with it? So this book, I wanted to create a resource for women that could understand not only their inherent dignity, but also the calling that we have as women to um, share that love of Christ with others through not only how we dress, but through how we behave, how we interact with others, because it's all fluid. You know, we're body and soul. And I really didn't feel there was a book that showcased this in a way that was both beautiful and thought provoking. So um, Worthy of Wearing is really just an explanation of that and a, and a way to go deeper in your prayer and your discernment to say, okay, who am I? Who is the person God created me to be? How can I express this in a really authentic way that's also fun and delightful and and shows the dignity that I have? In your book, you talk about like this is a this is a mindset and sort of a thought process, and I think that's a really interesting and sort of different way of looking at things because we have such a kind of superficial culture, and it's a lot about brands and things that are on the external, but you sort of argue that this the concept of fashion and, and what you wear emanates from inside of you. And how did you come to that thought? Because it's so different. Well, I think through my own journey of playing around with different styles and fashions, I've always loved it, but I had never really hit on what, when, when do I truly feel like myself? What am I wearing in those in those moments? And then realizing that it is a mindset because you have to make a choice and make a habit around it rather than just saying, kind of like when you decide to eat every day, am I going to eat to nourish my body or am I eating something that's just to fill up the void that's there? You know, usually we like to eat something that's also delicious and healthy and maybe even looks beautiful on a plate. And I think fashion and style is very similar. We find a lot of joy, I think, especially as women, when something is palatable, it feels exciting to our senses and it also feels right in our soul. So it does take some discernment and also building a habit around it, I think is where the, the word mindset came into play because it's very easy to throw on clothing that your best friend told you to buy or that's coming down the runway that's trendy. Um, but if it's not right with who you are authentically, it not only shows in your own confidence, but I think also when you go out into the world, you can kind of sense when someone is wearing something that's expressing something that's different than actually the person God created them to be. You know, but you're, you're talking about some 
self-expression. And that's something that our culture gets wrong a lot of the time. You know, the modern culture put, puts this laser focus on self-expression that whatever's inside has to come out. But I'm sure that's not how you mean it. It's not about, I'm sure it's not about in your head and, and in ours, it's not about just expressing whatever idea, you know, you woke up with that day. It's something deeper than that. How, how is it deeper than that idea of self-expression? Because your personal style, in my opinion, is about your story and who you are. It's so much more than just what is trending or what is popular. So I like to really think, have someone take a full reflection of, you know, where have I traveled? What is my family background like? Uh, what are the things that bring me joy? Are there colors that are really special to me? Are there pieces of jewelry that I have that are from my family that make me feel connected to my history? That's what true personal style is. And it, that's where the effortlessness comes in. When you're creating a persona, anyone can throw on the same dress. But when you see a woman who's authentically wearing that dress because it's connected to who she is, you just see a different sort of confidence and peace in the way that she walks and the way that she carries herself. Something else that gets to this mindset, I'm mindset concept reminds me of a conversation I had with my daughter this weekend actually I was taking her to a pool party and um, these were fourth grade girls and she was one of just a couple who was in a one-piece suit and it led to a discussion of modesty I had a sort of a hard time answering her questions about where is the line with modesty because I said you know different cultures understand it differently what might be modest for us is not modest for other cultures ultimately what I sort of and that you know it's not a about like measuring how thick is the strap and where exactly does the hem fall, but that it's more about what is your intention with what you're wearing and what kind of attention are you trying to attract? And that was sort of the best that I could come up with. But I wonder how you would answer the question of is modesty a mindset? And especially in our culture, you know, what would be how would you address this issue of sort of reclaiming modesty and, and what is modesty in fashion in the modern era? Well, I think to, to start with the question of your daughter, I think, you know, I have a daughter as well who's around the same age and we talk about this a lot, especially living in a place where it's so warm. You know, we see lots of people wearing warm weather clothing that's not always fully modest. But what I would tell her is that, you know, our body was created with so much intentionality, with so much beauty and love um, that we should not reveal what should remain hidden. And there are parts of our body that should remain hidden. And that's just a very simple way to explain it to, you know, a little girl. But I think part of it also is that every body shape is different. Every body's, you know, bust and hips and the way that we walk and the size of our torso is different. So what may look modest on me may look immodest on someone else. So it really comes down to knowing how your body, you know, knowing the shape and size of your body and how the clothing drapes over it. And does it reveal something that should be hidden? And does that cause a distraction in an interaction that you're having, let's say, uh, where someone should be just meeting your gaze and seeing your beautiful face and learning from you um, by meeting you at the face? Or is there something that's revealed that is distracting to that interaction that they are going to, whether by the creasing of the clothing or the way it's draping or the skin that's exposed, going to miss out on looking at your eyes first and getting to know you and therefore making a judgment about the way that your something is exposed or that is distracting. You know, modesty today is... <laughs> People forget it's a virtue. <laughs> um, it's a virtue in our behavior, in our speech, in the way that we dress. And it's so much more holistic than just the size of your, your straps or the depth of your V-neck. And I think when we look at it that way and we think of refining our behavior 
to be more Christ-like, to be more virtuous, um, how we dress and how we behave just goes hand in hand very easily. One thing that puzzles me as as the mother of girls is that girls these days are growing up and they're being told that they are very powerful people, that they're going to go out and conquer the world and they're, they can do anything. At the same time, they're being asked by by the culture, by the same culture, by by Hollywood, by the media, to dress in very provocative ways that, that puts first and before everything, all the, all the other ones wonderful things that they are, it puts first their sexual attractiveness and even their sexual availability. How do we talk to our daughters about this, about how, you know, that part of themselves is not something that they should be holding front and center, that that's something that should be more um, more intimate and more more quietly expressed and, and only in the right places and times. Yeah, this is something I think that's so important for our girls to hear right now. Um, it's such a contradiction from the media to say, you can be great and powerful. You can have influence only if you take your clothes off and you're as sexy as possible. And so it puts us in this position of vulnerability and takes away our dignity, but then says, but now you can be powerful and that's impossible. You know, so explaining to our young girls that, that contradiction of, well, we shouldn't strip away our dignity to then have power. We should uh, maintain our dignity. We should protect our dignity. Um, we should hold on to that. That way, when we are using our gifts and our talents, we can fulfill our mission in a way that truly is powerful with the blessing of God rather than being in this very vulnerable state where so many terrible things can happen from even just switching the way that you dress, moving into dressing immodestly can attract the wrong people into your life. It can detract from the opportunities that you may have. Um, you think of professional settings and university settings, and the, the more that you take your own self-respect and dignity seriously, the more success that you can have because the focus is away from your physical body and it's back onto your gifts, your strengths, and your talents. Those are beautiful. That's a beautiful way that you express that. I'm going to record. I'm going to take this recording and play it back to my daughters. This is a very, it's, it's a, it's a lovely way to express something very true. Know that the people, that these girls, young women have so much more to offer than, than their bodies. And unfortunately, it does put them in a very sad position and very undignified position at, at, at which point they're not powerful because they're trading on the lo- in the lowest coin of the realm, right? Which is, which is sexuality. How do we, how do we as adult women, um, how do we model that? For, uh, because even, even women, when we're grown up, we have trouble. I know I have trouble trying to stay fashionable and trying to stay contemporary and not being overly sexualized in, in, in my look and in, in the tightness of my clothes. It's hard to shop. It's hard to find that right uh, balance as, as age advances. Well, I think the first thing to remember is that a lot of us are wounded in this area, especially as adult women, uh, whether it was from just experiences we had, whether it was from the toxic feminism that we've all been really fed over the course of our lives. And so having that very narrow view of this is what a woman should look like and this is what she should be, having that at the forefront, I think, is a is a really good reminder, just like the way that we're reminded of our sin, like, okay, acknowledge we're sinful. And then that's how we have mercy. That's how we have Christ walking with us. When we acknowledge the wounds that we have surrounding our femininity around the way that we dress, it's much easier to have that awareness and not pass it on to our girls. So for example, you know, making sure that when we're speaking about ourselves, we're not speaking about ourselves in a way that detracts from our self-respect and saying something negative, like, oh, I hate the way I look in that color, or gosh, I wish I was just 10 pounds lighter, or 
you know, oh, I really don't like, you know, I look like a mess today. You know, those little phrases that we hear in our culture all the time that have become so commonplace, our girls are listening, they're watching. And so it's so important for us to have really that kind of self-control to say, you know what, Lord, I, I know you created me with dignity. I may not feel beautiful. I may not feel like the most amazing, beautiful woman because I wish I did have 10 pounds less on the scale, or I wish I was a size X, Y, and Z. Um, but letting that love of Christ fill you and not letting it be attached to a size, a shape is going to model for our daughters how to do that too. And it is easier said than done. And I, and I'm now pregnant, so I'm going through lots of <laughs> changes and, uh, sizes and all these things. And so much easier said than done some days, but it's so important for us to maintain that, that self-respect in front of our young girls, because it's so easy to go out and shop and say, well, I'm going to buy this thing because it's on sale. I'm going to buy this dress because I saw it on someone else and it looked great. Um, we really have to have a very pure sense of what fits our body, what is our personal style. And that way it just flows. And I've noticed in the, in the last, even in the last few months that we've been living in South Florida, I've been wearing a lot more dresses, which was never really something I would wear. My four-year-old son constantly tells me how lovely and beautiful he mm. thinks my <laughs> dresses and, and notices these things where before when I was wearing a pair of Levi's and a t-shirt, it was just never, you know, a conversation. So there's something very beautiful that happens when you start to model these ideals in front of your children. And it, it just teaches them, you know, by doing rather than by, by saying it, you know, we're, we're both uh, moms to young kids and, you know, especially for moms who are mostly staying home and then add on the pandemic where people, you know, are probably, you know, maybe this is changing and certainly beginning to change, but there's certainly been movement away from getting dressed. And I think the struggle is really real for moms. And I certainly struggle with it because there's days where I'm like, why would I get dressed? <laughs> I am not seeing any adults between the hours of X and X, at least not adults that I'm ever going to see again. And um, it's just a very different lifestyle when you leave sort of a workplace environment, um, whether you're working at home or staying at home with kids. So what would your advice be to moms who feel totally overwhelmed at the concept of going from like yoga pants and tank tops? I don't know anybody who dresses like that ever. Um, to, <laughs> you know, how is there like, what's like a step-by-step -step or sort of manageable way to just bring it to the next level? You know, I think starting small, uh, you know, go through your jewelry box look at your shoes, go through your tops and maybe you're wearing the yoga pants, but maybe you're throwing on a really beautiful sweater or maybe you have some lipstick that's your favorite color and you keep saying, I'm going to save that until Sunday mass or I'm going to wear that the next time I go out with my girlfriends for dinner or date night with my husband. Why not today? That's, that's my question because life is very short and I think we learned that especially in the last few years, just all of the different tragedies that have been hitting our world. Life is short and we should spend it in enjoyment. And there are very small, tiny little things we can do every day to feel a little bit of delight and a little bit of lightness. And I think as a stay-at-home mom, we can often get overwhelmed with the sort of never-ending, uh, you know, chores and things that kids need and the things that come up that we don't expect. So having these little small expressions of beauty can bring us a little bit of peace. And it doesn't need to, you know, mean that you're wearing a, a full blazer and high heels in the house or something or a full face of makeup. It's whatever brings you that little bit of beauty 
and joy and delight. And then I think once you start getting that those feet kind of wet, you start to say, well, okay, I, I tried earrings and now I'm going to maybe move into some lipstick and maybe in a few months I'll start, you know, wearing these beautiful clothes that I love that I keep saving. Um, because ultimately when we save things for certain occasions, we're sort of making an idol out of the clothing and saying, well, it's so special that it's not good enough for me today. Or it's so special that I have to keep waiting and waiting. And then we end up with these closets full of beautiful things that we don't use. And so to be good stewards of our material items, it's important for us to, of course, use the things that we own, use them to our benefit and use them to not only bring ourselves joy, but um, really to, to create an approachability with the ones that we're with all day, whether it's our children or in a workplace um, or even if you're just going to get gas, you know, sometimes you have great interactions with strangers um, because they feel they can approach you because of the way that you've put yourself together. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that at the end, Nicole, because I, f- I find that um, dressing dressing up a little is often a, a, a kind of charity that we practice and a kind of apostolate, right? Like if somebody, if you go over to bring a child to a friend's house or somebody invites you over for a cup of coffee or even for your husband, um, they know that you took a little extra care and that you you tried a little harder and made yourself more beautiful and more presentable and, and people really appreciate that. As a culture, it's it's very nice to to remember that when we when we dress, we also dress for others for their pleasure, for their for, so that they know that we care how they are feeling that day and that they know that we took a little extra care to to go be with them. Does that uh, does that make sense to you too? Absolutely. And I I think it dignifies our jobs, especially being a stay-at-home mom, to show that, you know, we're not a slave. We're not a servant Mm -hmm. to our children in our house and our husband and our family. We're our own individual women with with our own unique expression. And so it's important for us to maintain that so that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years into our life as a mother, we're not questioning, who is this woman in the mirror? You know, who is she? What happened to that young, fun girl who met her husband and they fell in love? You know, we have to maintain those simple habits of getting dressed, brushing our teeth, you know, combing our hair because they express that little piece of who we are. And I think we are, we can forget that so easily when we stop doing it. And in the name of taking care of kids, cleaning a house, you know, running people around in carpools and things like that, we have to maintain that because that is our, that is essentially who we are. It's an important part of who God made us to be. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for all your wise words. Um, after this, I'm going to go make myself pretty for the day. <laughs> if you could see me, you'd be horrified. <laughs> not following any of your wise wise counsel right now um, but it's still early in the morning and uh, I hope that our listeners will look up your book it's called Worthy of Wearing and you can visit Nicole's website at NicoleMCaruso.com that's Nicole with just a C not a C-H and the book is available through Sophia Institute Press Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us as we mark the transition from one year to the next, thanking God for all the grace He's given us in 2022 and begging for His help that 2023 will be a true year of the Lord. 
As we make this transition, the church has us turned to the Blessed Virgin Mary and ponder in particular the ongoing mystery and reality of her motherhood because Mary's maternity and the passing of time are intimately connected. St. Paul tells us when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman so that we might receive adoption as sons. The fullness of time is precisely the moment when Mary's fiat allowed the eternal to enter into time, when the Son of God took on her humanity and entered our world, changing human history into salvation history. Therefore, Mary is not just the mother of God with us, but the mother of us all, entrusted to her by that Son when he died so that we might live. At this time of transition from one civil year to the next, when we're all led to think about the passage of time, about all that has happened during the past year and all that might occur in the year to come, the Church has us turned to our mother Mary to show us how to live this new year with faith, no matter what occurs. Little did Mary expect, as she was beginning the Jewish New Year around 6 BC, that that year would inaugurate the fullness of time that St. Paul describes, that God would send a son born of a woman, and that she would be that woman. Little did she know she would receive a visit from the Archangel Gabriel, that she would conceive and carry the Son of God in her womb, put her life at risk for conceiving a child from someone other than by her husband Joseph, give birth to Jesus in Bethlehem in the midst of poverty and rejection, receive a surprise guests, shepherds, angels, and wise men from afar, present him in the temple as Simeon announced that he would be a sign of contradiction, have Herod hunt down her son to kill him, and have to flee in the middle of the night to Egypt. What a year that must have been. And that was just the beginning of her adventure. The church sets Mary before us as a model of faith and trust in God as we begin 2023 because Mary, like us, needed faith, needed trust in God to journey into the unknown. So we commence the new year not having any idea what it will bring. She gives us her maternal confidence and faith that whatever comes, whether seemingly good or bad, whether tremendous happiness or sadness, births and conversions of loved ones or unexpected deaths, even our own, great advances for the church or colossal failures, that whatever comes, whether seemingly adverse or propitious, Christ wants to incorporate these events into his saving mission, even making his grace superabound when sin abounds. After faith, the second way Mary seeks to mother us as we transition from one civil year to another it's by helping us to acquire a contemplative heart like hers. This Sunday's Gospel of the visit of the shepherds to Bethlehem, after Mary had heard all that they had told her about what the angels had said to them, St. Luke tells us that she kept all these things reflecting on them in her heart. Pope Benedict, for whom the whole church is now praying, talked about Mary's contemplative heart in his apostolic exhortation on the Word of God and the life of the mission of the church. He said that Mary, ever attentive to God's Word, lives completely attuned to that Word. She treasures in her heart the events of her son, piecing them together as if in a single mosaic. He said she shows us all in the church how to piece together all the events of our life to the events of Jesus' life and to understand our ups and downs within God's plan of salvation. Mary wants to help us to develop a, simple, a similar contemplative heart as hers. Christmas morning, the church has us ponder the prologue to St. John's Gospel, in which St. John tells us of his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. The graces God wants us to receive and respond to in 2023 are building on the grace he gave us in 22, 21, and beyond. Many of these graces have built on those he gave to our parents and grandparents, as well as the graces he gave to the church before us, to priests and religious, to so many popes. This means that the events of this past year 
in the events of the new year aren't random. Every year is like a new chapter in a book, but it's not a new book. It's building on what God has been trying to do in our life up until now. What he's done for the world in Christ, what he did all the way back to creation. In order to live well the new chapter, we need to see how what will fill the at present blank pages of the new chapter is related to what has already come. Every gift this year, including the caresses of the crosses with which you will bless us in the church, is building upon so many gifts that God has already given us. But we need a contemplative heart, a heart that connects the dots and treasures everything God gives in order to perceive it. That's the second thing Mary wants us to wants to mother us to learn. The third and last thing we'll ponder is more specifically how Mary seeks to mother us and make us capable of mothering Jesus and others in his name. In nature, as well as in the supernatural world, mothers normally teach their daughters how to mother their grandkids. Likewise, Mary wants to train us to cooperate with and share in her maternity. I'll never ponder, I'll never tire of pondering St. Ambrose's great insight that Pope Benedict loved to cite, that even though Jesus had only one mother according to the flesh, in faith Christ is called to be the progeny of us all. We're called to conceive the word we hear interiorly and let that word gestate and grow to be so big that eventually, as if we were 11 months pregnant, we need to give birth to the word together with our flesh in the midst of the world. This is a two-step process. First, by letting Mary mother us to help us to conceive her son, the word of God, within and let him grow. And second, by letting Mary help us to bring that word to birth and grow in others. Christ knows we need this double gift from his mother, which is why on Calvary he entrusted us to his own mother's maternal genius. St. John Paul II said that Mary's acceptance of us as her spiritual children was part of her original fiat, part of her allowing her entire life to develop according to God's word, including his words on Golgotha, Behold your son. Her mothering of us is not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, but she seeks to help us hear the word of God and keep it, what will make us indeed brothers and sisters and mothers of Jesus. She adds each of us as tesserae in the mosaic of love that is her heart, together with the love she has for her son. When a woman, as we know, is the mother of many children, she still has a, a unique, unrepeatable, and intimate relationship with each one. What's true for motherhood according to the flesh is also valid for motherhood in the order of the spirit. Mary seeks to help each of us, entrusted to her, become fully conformed to her son. The great way we renew ourselves in devotion to Mary's motherhood and to our identity as her beloved daughters and sons is at Mass, by which we enter into time into the eternal event of Calvary, when Jesus, giving his body and blood for our salvation, gave us to his mother and gave his mother to each of us. St. John Paul II wanted us in the Eucharist upon a Miriam's maternal love of her son as a means to grasp better not only how to receive Jesus in Holy Communion, but also to understand more profoundly how Mary loves each of us. He asks, Is not the enraptured gaze of Mary as she contemplated the face of the newborn Christ and cradled him in her arms that unparalleled model of love which should inspire us every time we receive Eucharistic Communion? He continued, Mary lived her Eucharistic faith even before the institution of the Eucharist, by the very fact that she offered her virginal womb for the incarnation of God's word. The Annunciation, Mary conceived the Son of God in the physical reality of his body and blood, thus anticipating within herself what to some degree happened sacramentally in every believer who receives under the signs of bread and wine the Lord's body and blood. As a result, there's a profound analogy between the fiat that Mary said in reply to the angel and the amen that every believer says when receiving the body of the Lord. 
Mary is asked to believe that the one whom she conceived through the Holy Spirit was the Son of God. In continuity with the Virgin's faith and the Eucharistic mystery, we're asked to believe that that same Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Mary, becomes present in his full humanity and divinity under the signs of bread and wine. At Mass, therefore, Mary seeks to mother us to receive her Son in faith, even before we receive his body and blood within. She wants to nurture us to offer our hearts and our whole bodies as tabernacles for her Son's incarnation. She wants to help our whole life become an Amen, so that our existence will develop in accordance with the Word made flesh we're so privileged to receive. In embracing Him, we're in turn embraced by her who has never ceased embracing the blessed fruit of her womb. And we in the Church are helped by her to continue to embrace Him and each person we meet, whom she likewise loves with a maternal heart. As we prepare to begin this new civil year and pray for the grace that will truly be a year of the Lord, we together with the whole Church cry out, Alma Redemptoris Mater, Hail, Mother of the Redeemer, Secure Cadenti, Surgere Quicorat Populo, Hasten to help your stumbling children who cry out to you. Mary, Mother of Jesus, please be a mother to us now and throughout the whole year. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 